So what was your biggest surprise in making this movie? I mean, besides the truck, the fire, losing a couple of your lead actors, replacing them with fantastic lead actors, uh, and then COVID-19 happening right before you're supposed to be theatrically released. I mean, isn't that enough? <laughs> that was me, Tim Malloy, talking to David Marmer, director and writer of the new horror film, 1BR. He's one of our guests today on Movie Maker Interviews, along with Alok Mishra, a producer of the film. I met Alok at the Sundance Film Festival, where he told my wife and me an insane story about the making of 1BR. First, they had to flee their production office because of a fire, then their lead actress dropped out, and then someone stole a production truck in the middle of the night. He wrote a terrific story about it for MovieMaker.com that I'll link to in the show notes. The trailer for 1BR reveals that it's about a young woman named Sarah, played by Nicole Bryden-Bloom, who breaks the no-pets policy at her seemingly idyllic new apartment complex. The retribution is swift and terrible. We talk in this episode about how David Marmer and Alok Mishra met after another project fell through, and how they got the great Taylor Nichols, a veteran of Whit Stillman's utterly charming films, to play a villain in 1BR. I apologize for some occasional Skype glitchiness in this interview, but Alok had to go outside to avoid waking a baby. That's a good reason, right? And now, Alok Mishra and David Marmer talking about 1BR, which is now available on demand in your 1BR, or 2BR, or your studio, or your house, or the secret compound where you've been staying in Nebraska. Yes, everyone has found out about the secret compound. I'm not really a scaredy cat, but uh, this played on my anxieties about being in a new apartment late at night and weird noises, and what was that? You did a really nice job. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, Alok, you wrote a very excellent piece for us in Movie Maker about the whole history of getting this movie made and some of the problems that you guys had to solve. But can you just, before we get into all that, can, can you just tell us, David, where the idea for this came from? Uh, yeah, this, um, this started really a, quite a long time ago when I first moved to L.A., um, and uh, I ended up living in an apartment that, that's weirdly similar actually to the one we ended up with in the movie um and uh the the real seed of the movie originally just came from my experience in that apartment and and i it was just you know i was very much like sarah i was new to la first time kind of living out on my own in a city where i didn't know anybody and you know i it was sunny and beautiful in this courtyard apartment and i was walking around and you know waving to neighbors but also just like i didn't know any of their names i didn't know anything about any of them we're sharing walls these are the people that are going to be the closest people if there's an emergency uh and then it, w- it was really when i i started also at the, at the time getting really interested in in utopian communities and sort of the history of all these strange fringe uh sects that seem to sprout up in la um and those two ideas kind of came together and then I felt like, Oh, that, that feels like a movie. How did you guys connect? How did you come together and uh, find one another to make this movie? Well, um, my wife went to high school with um, 
David's manager, uh, Allard Cantor, who's also another producer on this film. Allard had given me two scripts. One of them was Tragedy Girls, and the other one was David's script. And of course, I don't read any of these scripts until like six months later when the other project falls through and I'm scrambling to find something. And I read Tragedy Girls, you know, very good script, but it's comedy and horror. And then I read David's, which I love. And so I get back to Allard and, uh, and his partner, Jared, uh, they have a company called Epicenter. And uh, I was like, oh, I read uh, this this Tragedy Girls movie. You know, I think comedy and horror is just tough to do. So it would probably be a pass for me. And they're all, they're all like, yeah, I just finished uh, filming uh, like two weeks ago. And I'm like, what do I know? <laughs> and then and it's actually a really good movie. They do a very good job in that film of, uh, of combining those two genres very well. Because usually you're very unsatisfied in one way or other. But it's actually a really good film. But then, I, uh, you know, I asked him about David. He said he's available. So David and I met at the Culver Hotel. And uh, nice. uh, we had a nice, uh, like, uh, coffee, and uh, we talked about movies and realized we had a lot of the same sensibilities. And, you know, me and my partner, Shane Morrister, were first-time, uh, you know, producers, and he was the first-time director. And we're like, what could go wrong? Let's just do this. <laughs> so uh, that's that's how it happened, and, that's, uh, that's, and it all became history, you know? Yeah. How did you end up directing this? I mean, the dream is kind of that you're going to direct your own script, right? <laughs> Uh, I mean, that that really, I think, originally came from my manager. So what happened was, you know, I had really been like I had gone to film school to study directing. That was what always what I wanted to do, because, I, you know, I grew up in the I grew up in the era of Spielberg and, and Scorsese and all these guys. And like, you know, um, it, it was always the auteur theory. Right. It was always like the director's vision. Um, and so that's what I went to film school for. And, and, and while I was there, I, I started to understand how important writing was to the process and in some ways more fundamental than directing. But I still came out, you know, going like, I want to be a writer director. I want to be a writer director. And then I just, you know, sort of struggled for years. I was making, um, like, uh, market research films and industrials, mm-hmm. um, which was good in a way in that I learned, uh, to kind of do everything. Um, you know, I could do sound, I could do editing, I could do, um, light visual effects and graphics and, and, you know, I could sort of do the whole process, um, cause, cause you had to, um, but I wasn't really getting anywhere as a director. And, you know, I think part of that is my sensibility, you know, I'm not, I'm not a flashy director. Um, you know, I, I was never going to make a music video. Um, and so at a certain point I, I just sort of had to take stock of where I was and I and I made this decision basically I was like look you know I want to be a writer director but if I had to choose one or the other which one would I choose and I chose writer I said I'm just going to I'm going to stop trying to be a director I'm going to focus on trying to be the best writer I can be I had some friends who had come through film school with me and were doing really well as writers um and you know I thought this is a way that you at least have some control over your fate um, and so I, I stopped trying to direct and I just focused on learning to be as good a writer as I could. And the, the sort of fruit of that several years later, several years of bad scripts and hard work later was, um, another script, um, called Invariant, um, which went around town and got some attention. And that's what got me, um, signed with an agent and with Allard and Jared at Epicenter. And then when I was signing with them, they said, well, you know, what other scripts can you send us? And I was like, I don't have anything I'm really proud of. So I went and I like and I looked back and there was, you know, one of the early scripts I had written was one BR. Um, And 
it, it was so old, like I had to, I was like, yeah, I'll send this to you. And then I like madly spent like three hours just updating the technology in it. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, I finally sent it to them. And to my surprise, they were like, there's really something here. I think that we could, I think, you know, it's small enough. I think we could get it. Cause I had told them, you know, ultimately I would love to direct, but that's not what I'm trying to do right now. Um, and they said, uh, you know, I think we could, I think we could make this happen for you. Um, you know, it needs a rewrite. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I agree. It needs a rewrite. Um, so then I went away and I, and I, you know, it had been years since I'd worked on it. So I was a totally different writer and I think a, a better writer. And I, I did really a ground up rewrite of it, um, which took me several months. And then that was the draft that they, that they sent around and, and made its way into a low sweaty hands. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the first things that happens in this movie is you find a great actress and then lose her. Um, can you say what happened and how that led you to the lead actress that you have, who's fantastic? I mean, uh, we, you know, here's the thing. We, I, I would love to dish. I would love to dish. <laughs> but I, I, know, I know that it's not going to help me in the long run. And, and if anything, right. you know, the truth of it is that uh, we really did really upgrade in a lot of ways. I mean, this other person we had was a lot more fussy, uh, you know, was asking us if she could leave early, like already to go learn stick fighting or something. And we were like, no, <laughs> we're shooting in for 15 days. You need to stay here. You need to be with us. You know, it's like, um, so like, you know, we, 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 all that kind of stuff, we, we tried to work with this person. It didn't work out. And, and for all of a sudden she was gone. Right. And so we were like, holy, holy moly, what do we do? And David had already had had already expressed like that. Uh, Nicole Bryden Bloom was his, like first choice. Like he liked her the best, but he was just going along with producers in a very nice way. I might, I might add, because he knew that like having, you know, a, a, a TV person, actress or whatever you want to say would automatically elevate us into like maybe being profitable. Right. And so for just a you know monetary point of view, it was like the right move to make. Now, when she left, we immediately went to Nicole because she was always our favorite. And she so sweetly said yes. And I mean, she literally got out of here on like a day's notice and you yeah. know, wow. put up in an apartment or whatever it was and our, uh, you know, hotel, whatever. And it was just such a rock star. Didn't have like got like an afternoon, I want to say. Right, Dave, to rehearse. Yeah, we had we had. So I met I met with her for coffee. I think the night she arrived, I think she still had her like suitcase with her. Um, and we just sort of met and said hi, you know, hi, I'm Dave, hi, I'm Nicole, and got to know each other a little. And then the, I think the next day we had about a half day, maybe four or five hours, where we just you know got together in a room and we just went through the script beat by beat. Um, and, uh, that was all we had. There was no, you know, I had, I really wanted to have a chance to get the whole ensemble together and have some rehearsal time be because I felt like, you know, this community is supposed to be so close knit. I wanted them to be comfortable with each other. Um, and there's such, you know, there's difficult material in there. So I, I, I really was hoping for, for a lot of rehearsal time, you know, it's the, the way these things go. And this is always the way with independent film. You don't, you don't get what you want and you have to make do with what you get. And, um, so yeah, we had, we had about a half day and it was during that rehearsal that I was like, that I became convinced we were in the right hands. <laughs> like yeah. even just in rehearsal, you know, where I'm saying like, we're not, we're not trying to do this for real. This is just like, she, she understood all the beats. I had seen that in her audition. I mean, she just, she, she's really smart. She had understood the script in a way that a lot of other people hadn't. And, um, and she could also just get, to where she needed to go 
immediately, like uncannily. It's she's she's just really skilled, um, which was totally necessary. Like, you know, we had 15 days, as Alok said, for the initial shoot, which meant simple coverage and a couple of takes usually. And if it had taken her, you know, some of the really intense stuff, you would not blame someone for needing six or seven takes just to get into it. Oh, but yeah. she, she didn't. She would just get there and it was like, oh, okay, well, we got one. We have time for another take. So let's, you know, try another color or let's try something different. And it just gave us a freedom that we would not have had without somebody as good as she is. I mean, she, she, I mean, I make a joke, but she could cry eight different ways. Like we'd be doing a shot where she'd be being tortured and we just need a, you know, need her to cry. And she'd like, she'd cry. And then I was like, oh, no, no, let me try that again. So it like fall, the tear falls exactly when it should. Wow. Like she, it's insane. Like she is so good. And you know who else is really great at crying too is, is, is Giles Maddie. He's amazing too. Like both of them can cry. Like, okay. Not that, not that, not that Giles has to so much in this movie, but he's just a big But he has, he does have the one scene. He cries. Yeah. In yeah. Yeah. There, there's a torture scene that's so bad early on that I was like, oh, no, I have to talk to these guys tomorrow. They're obviously sick. And then I was like, where did they get the idea? And I realized, like, this is straight out of the Bible. It is, but very, Appreciate very, it. very yeah, well you. done. Oh, thank my you. God. <laughs> um, I was, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you going to festivals, because uh, we went all over the world with this movie, and that was really great. And I, I'm just a sick person, and so... I would literally sit there, like, I'd stand in the back usually and watch it. And every time that part came up, it's just amazing to just see the reactions of the audiences all over the world. Like, they were all like, oh, you know, some more verbal than others. But you could tell, like, it really did have a great effect. They were, they were horrified. Like, it's really, like, you know, very effective scene, as they say. It's, it's good horror. Yeah, it really works. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, So I'm jumping around on things that went wrong. But another thing that went wrong... Um, you lost your truck. You lost your production truck. It, yeah. Look, the way we met, uh, we were at a dinner and you told us this story and my wife, the publisher, movie maker, Deirdre said, oh my God, you guys have to write about this for us. Um, and ultimately you did. <laughs> yeah. Like it just, it just came out. Yeah. Can you tell the story of, of the truck? Well, it was, it was a horrifying story story and so much as like you know we're in 15 days we're on day six and you know it's long hours obviously and uh you know i uh wake up to a text not in the middle of the night because it came in the middle of the night but i don't wake up to it until like five o'clock in the morning when we need to start getting ready <laughs> to get set and it's just you know it says something really bad happened but it's gonna be okay i think and so i was like well, what the hell happened like, you know i'm like they're like oh we have truck stolen and so what happened is that we um we were parking our trucks uh, right outside our our, uh, our production office, which was uh, right. It's kind of right across the freeway from the Getty Museum, off of 405. And um, it was it was a production office that almost burned down. By the way, I think we go into that too in the article, but thankfully didn't. <laughs> so we were parking these three box trucks right outside on the street, like on Sepulveda, right? And it's a very safe neighborhood. It's, I mean, it's considered Bel Air, so it's like it should be very yeah. nice and safe, whatever. But um. This white Escalade with no license plates pulls up, and these the three guys get out, and like in eight minutes, like one of them's driving off with the truck. But what they don't realize is in the middle truck we have a PA, a parking PA, who's been there the entire time and been watching everything that's going on, and has dialed the police, and then gets into his own car and then chases this truck, which goes from the 405 to the 10 to the 110. And you know the police are trying to tell this guy, this this great parking PA, to stand down and and 
He's like, no, 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 I will not stand down because you are behind this truck in pursuit. And he was very adamant and, and an amazing, really, like, I mean, gosh, you got to hire this guy anytime you can. Uh, but uh, what happens is that the police finally, like, as in concert with the police helicopter, the police helicopter immediately shows its line, its, its light down on the truck. And all of a sudden, like, three cop cars rush in behind the car. And the, the car, the, the truck driver is like freaked out. Like, it all happens at once. And he tries to gun it and tries to get away. He gets off the freeway near the uh, Felix sign, if you know where that is. It's kind of iconic in the LA. Off the oh, yeah. Right? It gets over there and tries, like, goes to a high speed chase, like on the surface streets all around USC. And finally, like, he's like trying to gun a, a truck. And it's not quite working. And he, <laughs> he does screw the truck up, actually. We had to pay whatever for the deductible for that. But uh, so he screws the truck's engine up. And he had to pull over. He knows the jig is up in this, uh, mcdonald's slash chevron gas station and then like you know there's like 10 cop cars he's like need to get out and do the whole thing and yeah they take him to jail and uh you know i think we had a video in the article that you had to put up and stuff so it's kind of funny uh that they're treating him so nicely if there's any any one point where the LLP, lapd have, tr have treated someone who didn't deserve it nicely it's right then uh so well, they're very he's, nice. He's very handsome. I mean, he's a very handsome I mean, truck. It kind of is. Like, I mean, he has the rugged, good looks of a lunatic <laughs> who likes to steal trucks in the middle of the night. Um, but he's he was he was apparently it's a car, it's a truck stealing ring, and they've never been caught before. And what they do usually is they take the trucks down to down to Tijuana, and it all gets oh, assembled nice. disassembled there. Yeah, but uh, he didn't make it. Didn't make it to the Felix sign. But uh, so this guy uh, apparently is new to the was new to the ring. And he uh, turned state's evidence. Uh, and supposedly we're supposed to get some kind of restitution, which I always say I've never seen that dime of, nor that I, nor that I ever will. But uh, yeah, that's what happened. And basically, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't tell David any of this. We didn't tell the actors any of this. Um, we just said, oh, we're starting an hour late. No one knew why. We're just like starting an hour late. I was just happy to have an extra hour of sleep that day. Yeah, so so we uh we 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 brought another truck in, put the stuff in that truck, and then got that to set. And uh, the the company, I forget the name of the company, they were great in helping us out. Um, but uh, yeah, so it it all worked out. And and like I said, the, the actors didn't know until we were at um some of them didn't know until we got to Fantasia and we're doing a Q and A. And I told a story wow. at Fantasia Fest, and they were like, "What?" <laughs> so we did a good job of keeping it away from them, just because. Because, you know, we had a 15-day shoot. We don't make people, like, obsessing about what just happened to the truck and stuff. So, <laughs> Guys, as you got Taylor Nichols, um, who I love. I mean, going back to the Whit Stillman movies, Metropolitan, Barcelona, all of them, really, except for, I think, one. Um, how did you end up seeing him as a great villain? Uh, well, Alok knows him. No way. You should, you should tell that story. Yeah. Well, you know, here's the thing. I met I met uh, Taylor Nichols. There's a great group called Filmmakers Alliance. That's a big uh, filmmaker group here in LA. That's independent filmmakers supporting each other. And I, I met him at one of their I met I met them uh, I met him at one of their parties. He was in a short film uh, for my friend George Zaber. He did an amazing job in there. And the, the truth of the matter is, I'm such a huge Metropolitan fan. For some reason, the whole downwardly mobile uh, idea in that film has always resonated with me in some way i, I feel like I've, I've been that person to some extent uh that was uh those group of kids and stuff so i had i i had watched it movie a million times i love barcelona i love all the wit stillman movies he's in and i've been just noticing him you know in all these different movies whether it be godzilla or any any little movie he was in i'd always notice him so i met him at this party and i, I really just i went up to him and i was just like i salted him with kindness i was just oh my god oh my god I love your, I love your films. I love everything. Da, da, da. I have a goddamn metro, metropolitan poster in my house. 
who wow. can say that? And he, and he was like, uh, okay, dude, uh, thank you. And uh, da, 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 da. I'm like, I might have a movie I want you to do one day. You just got to promise me to say yes. And, and I didn't even have the movie at that point. So fast forward a year, I do have the movie. And I call him up and I'm like, I don't know if you remember me. I'm that crazy Indian guy. I got the Metropolitan poster. Uh, you got you to gotta read the script. And he's like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. So he was actually on vacation and took the time out to read the script and was like, I fucking love it. I want to do this. And we're like, okay. So it went from there. It, it never goes to say, never. It, you should always go to parties and you should always try to go up to people and talk to them at parties because you never know where it's going to go. I love those movies so much. I'm rewatching Chris Eigman's sitcom from like 1999. Um, you know, it's like, you I know. Met, I met him. So here's another story. I met him in a chip shop in Brooklyn. Like he's just no sitting way. there and I'm like, Chris Eigman, I fucking love you. And like, and I started talking to him, he's like, Hey, we're gonna go get next door and get a beer. You want to come? And I'm like, do I? Can I? <laughs> so I've, I've assaulted two of the the Metropolitan cast thus far, and, and two of the main people from Barcelona. So, if any of them else will come my way, uh, watch out. <laughs> See, I love the crossover of like your movie couldn't be more different than those movies, and yet there's such a shared taste. I think the shared taste is just good storytelling. I mean, just like a respect for audience and a smart, tight script. And trusting that they're going to know where you're going with it and that you don't have to spoon feed them. I don't know. Yeah, I would say that. Yeah, and Taylor, Taylor, Taylor just has this sort of like I, nice guy sort of look and, and, and a nice guy personality in real life, right? But he also has that sort of sinister look for, for, you know, for him as well, where he sort of looks like he could maybe turn the corner in some way. He definitely has like a duality of himself and stuff, for sure. <laughs> Um, so what was your biggest surprise in making this movie? I mean, besides the truck, the fire, losing a couple of your lead actors, replacing them with fantastic lead actors, uh, and then COVID-19 happening right before you're supposed to be theatrically released. I mean, isn't that enough? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what are you doing next? Uh, well, well, you guys have another movie you're working on right now, right? Yeah, we're, uh, we're working on a movie uh, with uh, this guy, Marcel Sarmiento, who did the movie Dead Girl. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a movie called Emergent. And I'm not allowed to say much more than that about it, but it's a, it's a, it's a much bigger uh, budget than uh, 1BR was. Uh, but um, after that, uh, we're trying to uh, work with David on another movie because we did have such a great relationship and we, and we definitely uh, know that he's a visionary. And I don't say that lightly. I mean that really meaningfully because he, his next script is, I'm not going to say 10 times better, but it's fucking amazing. I will say that. And it's, it's something we can't, we can't talk about it very much. He may have mentioned the name of it somewhere in this interview, but, uh, but we, we won't, we won't give it what it's, give it give out what it's away, what it's about away because we want to JJ Abrams the shit out of this, not that you know. Uh, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll be working on it very hard and hopefully when we open back up for business in Hollywood and stuff and uh, we'll uh, keep you in suspense until then, but we can't yeah. wait to work with David again. He's fantastic. Yeah, me too. I'm really excited to, to, to get back, get the, get the team back together. Um, and yeah, I'm just using my quarantine time to polish the script and get it as, as good as possible. And then we'll, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully there will still be movies in a couple months, and we'll uh, we'll we'll get back to it. I love it. Um, what should I have asked that I didn't ask? Is there anything else you guys want to talk about? 
give it away, but I can just say that we had kind of multiple endings uh, that we yeah. played around with. Um, you know what's funny? That, when you said that you didn't get the ending you wanted, I really liked the ending. I thought the ending well, that really was, elevated it. Well, that ending is the ending we went back, we went back and we shot, actually. Yeah. Oh, good. Uh, and okay. and, and, tr- and truth, be, truth be told, actually, we actually went back and shot two different endings. They're, they're very similar. The, the, the two endings that we shot were like, they were very much overlapping. Um, so it wasn't like we were shooting two completely different endings. Um, it was essentially one ending with two different flavors and two different, like the very ending beats were slightly different. Um, and the reason for that for me was that one of them I felt like was more cinematic, if you will, but the other one felt truer to sort of the character arc. Um, and, you know, so I'd say I think the, the, it was the writer side of me and the director side of me were a little bit at war. Um, and you know, the producers were very much on the director's side on that one. Um, and that's, that's the ending we, we ultimately ended up with. And I, and I, it's, it's been totally clear to me since then that it was the right, it was the right choice. Um, you know, I think we, I think, um, you know, they were, they were hundred percent right on that. And, um, you know, the director side of me is happy. Um, well, we, the writer, the writer is still a little bit angry about it. <laughs> well, you know, uh, the, the, the other part of it is that uh, I used to test movies for a living, and so we ended up doing like um, five screenings, like five focus group screenings for this, right? Where we like let twenty people watch it, and then we would do a focus group afterwards. And for most all of them, uh, the the ending that was uh, the ending that ended up to be was the one that they chose. So that was another thing that kind of like made it more clear to us that that's the way to go. The other thing that's interesting about the testing, I'll say, is that, um, you know, I, I think I can talk about this because it's in the trailer, it's everywhere, but uh, the whole part with the cat, um, th- there was a big debate on whether to show more of the cat. And uh, I was of the camp that I really wanted to see this burning cat. I, I mean, even so, <laughs> even so much as I wanted to see the cat almost try to leap out of the oven in some way as a horrible way, because I'm probably a sick individual. But the testing kind of proved to us that basically 75% of the audience didn't want to see that. 25% did, but they were actually more of the hardcore horror fans. But they were also okay with not seeing as much. So the decision yeah. at the end of the day was to make it that we don't see as much. And so I think that was actually helpful because, you know, I, who knows? I, yeah, I was very glad that testing came out that way. I would have, you, you might've had a fight on your hands if you'd tried to push it the <laughs> other way. I, I really felt strongly that, that it, we were seeing plenty. Well, it would have also cost us a lot more money. And that was the <laughs> other reason. We were like, okay, hey, we're not going to fucking do that. Right. <laughs> What about a screaming cat running through the apartment on fire, setting the curtains on fire and making things oh. worse and worse? Or would that just have had nothing to do with the rest of the movie? And no, I'm definitely I mean, in the I camp. Think that would have worked great. <laughs> I mean, I would have loved to see that in a, in a very evil dead kind of way. But it'd be like yeah. a real like psycho turn where it just like the rest of the movie is about this cat. <laughs> yeah, the, the whole complex burns down and we don't find yeah. out any of the story about it. Yeah, great. Right. Uh, That's why. That's why I don't make the movies. Um, <laughs> no, I think you showed just enough to get it across without being like, ugh. Cause, and also, I guess we well, need I'll to... Say, uh, I'll, say, I'll say this. The, uh, the, cat's, the cat in the movie's name is Giles. Uh, our Brian character is also named Giles. Uh, uh, we called uh, the cat One Take Giles because he was amazing. That cat was fucking on. <laughs> And we tease like you know actor Giles about it all the time. We were like, hey, listen, fucking one tight take Giles over there can get it done every <laughs> single time. What the hell's wrong with you, Maddie? <laughs> um, I I can also hear your dog barking in the background, which totally tells us what side you're on in this whole thing. <laughs> 
Yeah, like, that's completely true. You're, the, the cat people thought you were suspect to begin with, and now it's like, oh, man. Well, now listen, oh, I, I was actually just checking to see if my cat was curled up on that chair back there, but he's, he's off somewhere else. <laughs> I am 100% a cat person, and, I, and I, I think only a cat person could write something as sadistic toward cats as, as, as this script. It was, it yeah. was what, what's going to horrify me the most, right? That's what you're always well, trying you know, to do. Actually, I, I think I can say this too. We orig the original death uh, David had planned for the cat was actually a crucifixion. And even I was like, <laughs> not a cat person who wanted to see the cat. I was like, we can't fucking do that. We can't, we can't do that. Come on. They're <laughs> really going to hate us if we do that. Like, that's oh, too much. God. <laughs> we all love cats. And there's a difference between fantasy violence and real violence. We love Clearly. cats. Clearly, yeah, clearly. Yeah. I mean, you're always yeah. the, the, the job of a writer always is torture your characters as much as possible, right? So yeah. in this case, that was that was literal. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, you, you know, I really blew this whole thing because the first question I wanted to ask is obviously you did used to do research into what audiences want, and I wanted to ask you straight away, what do audiences want and how does that align with this film? Well, I mean, listen, I think for this type of film, they it's a smaller film, right? So when, when audiences are going to take a risk on a smaller film, they want to have at least at the very minimum, you know, a good story, a good twist, um, great characters. And even if you don't have all the locations to shoot, if there's ways to sort of make it bigger, they want to see that. If there's things, little things you can do to enrich it, to make it seem like it's a more expensive film, then, then you spend the money where you can. And so, for example, one thing I think was really big that audiences absolutely appreciate is that we actually uh, spent money on a composer who did a fantastic job, used real instruments, like booked recording time, which Dave and I actually went in to go watch the sessions just for fun and stuff. And like, you know, there's a French horns in this movie. There's like real piano. There's like, you know, it's not just a guy on a keyboard doing stuff. I think when you have those little things, it adds to the richness of the overall product. And I think that that, that, that leads to the overall enjoyment uh, of the film, increased enjoyment by your audience and stuff. I think it's just little things, even if you don't have very much money. I mean, also, listen, we, caused, we, we called in a lot of favors. One of the other little things, or it's actually a huge thing that we got very lucky on, is uh, the sound. Um, mm. My uh, high school friend and college roommate from USC, Jason George, who, like, you know, is a, a huge professional in the industry, you know, does movies like 21 Jump Street and Alice in Wonderland, you know, basically helped us out for free. You know, got us into those sound stages and helped us, like, you know, negotiate the mix and everything else. And, like, I mean, if we hadn't had him, I don't know what we could have done. So going back to it, I think it's, it's the little things that make all the difference and where you can pull favors, where you can do whatever else to sort of make the movie scene bigger and richer and more like, a, you know, a bigger budget film is something that the normal audiences appreciate. I think it's one reason that our film has been very, very lucky. You know, we just we just released last Friday. We've been very lucky to to have had a great response to it. We're 85 on Rotten Tomatoes right now, and out of you know you know almost 34 reviewers or whatever, we're um, we're playing on like iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, every place that you can you know normally stream stuff. We're there, and on you know iTunes, for example, we've been uh, in the top four movies in their horror section, in their independent section, top 20 awesome. for sure in their um, in their uh, what's it called thriller section, right? 
um, it, it's 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 taking off on its own, not just because of the you know the for, because of you guys and you know the journalists and so forth, but it's taking off because I think people have good word of mouth on it, and and that's one of the you know coming back to the movie testing thing, when when you test a movie, there's a score on there called Would You Definitely Recommend It to a Friend, and that score is so important because more than any trailer we could cut or any sort of like ad placement we could buy, you telling your friend that movie is dope is the thing that's going to make that person see that movie 10 times more than anything we can do. And I, I think that because because um, we're showing so well on these streaming services, it's because word of mouth. It's because people are legitimately enjoying it and telling their friends. So that's that's the happy, uh, I guess, circumstance from, you know, having tested the movie and, and knowing audiences and so forth and, and then getting very lucky with, like, talking to journalists such as yourself. Uh, I have been so unhelpful. You even wrote the article that appeared in Movie Maker. I haven't done a single thing. Um, oh, no. but, but I would. I, I hereby endorse the movie to anyone listening. I think it's really good. I think, I think people should go see it. If any of my friends are listening, go see it. Um, the other thing I want to ask, what do people definitely not like? Like, are you finding any patterns of things that, that audiences are just really sick of or are not into. I remember reading a story years ago that people didn't like, this is one of those dumb, antiquated, awful things where people didn't like when a female protagonist had multiple male romantic partners because like, she's a bad person now and I can't root for her. Is there any stuff like that that's, that still lingers? You know, I'd only, I'd only say from, from my point of view, I think it's always just been the cat. You know, I mean, there, there are certain people, certain people are like literally like I, I look at, uh, you know, our YouTube, you know, trailer, for example, and I look at the comments in there. Right. And people will be like, oh, cat, cat being killed. I'm out. You know, and I'm like, all right, well, then it's not for you. This is all, you know, but killing the girl is OK, but not to get the cat is just out, you know, out of bounds. It's like, you know, that's the craziest thing to me. Like, that's that's what gets you, you know. So but I think that's probably the only like thing that. And, and this is so minor, by the way. It's so minor that whole part of the movie. Oh yeah, that's the only thing that I've seen real rejection from. But uh, most everyone else, I think, is is is. I mean, there's not there's very little re out not rejection of the film when people have actually watched it. Yeah. Uh, if anything, in, in movie scoring, we call movie score excellent, very good, good, fair, poor, very good range with uh, most fans. Uh, even now when it's getting onto stuff like, you know, Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb, we're still around that very good sort of, uh, marker. Uh, and when people don't like the film, it scores usually sort of in the good or okay range. There's very little people that are going to give the movie fair and poor who have actually seen the movie. So there's very little rejection of it in that regard. So yeah. we're very lucky that that's the case across the board, actually. And this is across like all age groups and like, uh, and genders and so forth too. It's just straight up well made. I don't think anybody can argue with that. I mean, it might like it's not my cup of tea. I don't like horror or whatever, but you can't argue that it's well made. So you know, I know. appreciate that. that. <laughs> Thank you so much, oh, David. I just think it's funny that there's literally a school of writing called Save the Cat, and you <laughs> killed the cat. <laughs> yeah, I, I at some point in the process, I remember having that thought and thinking like, well, good because. That that book is nonsense as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so sorry, 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 the ghost of Blake Snyder, but I, I I don't I don't like your book. So the the beach the beach sheet doesn't work. Uh, look, I mean, maybe it does for some people. Um, it to me, uh, beat sheets and sort of structural analyses, they do have their place. I think. For me, that place is 
when you've already written something, it's not working quite right and you're trying to figure out why, it can be useful to analyze it. I think it's also useful to analyze movies that you like um, or don't like and think like, you know, where are these things happening and, and so forth. But like, I find it profoundly unhelpful when I'm trying to write hmm. because it boxes you in, it limits your, your, your creative choices. Um, and it's just, it, it, to me, it, 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 it's a recipe for a very uninteresting, um, kind of bland kind of writing. Um, which unfortunately you see sometimes, especially with certain kinds of studio films. Um, I mean, I think like the 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 best the best sort of like writing or sort of story advice. Well, I mean, there's there's lots of good story advice out there. The one that's popping to mind right now is from there. There's a famous memo that David Mamet wrote to the writers on a TV show he was running called The Unit, mm-hmm. and it's a very long mammity memo that's very it's very profane and and angry but the the core basic advice of it that i think is really useful is like the job of a scene is never to explain what's happened or um you know give exposition or you know or even to illuminate a character the job of a scene the sole job of a scene is to make the audience want to see the next scene it's to make wow. the audience wonder what's going to happen next. And like, it's very difficult to have every scene in a, in a story do that, of course. And sometimes, you know, you have to play around. But like, that is a rule that I come back to very often. Is like, you know, when I'm stuck or I'm trying to figure out how to navigate around something, it's like, well, you know, how do I make this scene as interesting as possible in and of itself? You know, and it's, look, I, I don't think there's any shortcut to, I think writing is horribly painful and it's it's long and it's slow and you get stuck. And I think the only good advice is just keep doing it. You know, you just have to slog through that stuff and then you'll you'll get there eventually.